Take your Bible this morning and would you open it to Matthew, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. We are just in that short series on Matthew 5, 1 through 16 on the Beatitudes. And we decided to do that as our summer series. And we're coming really this week and next week to the last two messages. And then I am greatly looking forward to return to the gospel of John. But let me read the text for you. Uh, God's word is so precious. We want to take time to walk through it so that when Jesus gave the great commission, teaching them to observe all or to obey all that I have commanded, we do that. And so we want to be able to teach the word of God. And that's what our ministry is all about. But I'd like to read for you 513 through 16, certainly a familiar passage. Jesus said there, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it, shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus here, as he closes that section out before he gets to Christ as the fulfillment of the law, gives one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture on our function in the world. What does God want us to do? What does our Lord command us regarding our function in this world in which we live. A question was asked of author Henry Blackaby some years ago at a conference at the Billy Graham Training Center. They asked him this question, what do you see as the future for the United States? And here's part of his answer. Blackaby said, the problem of America, he said, is the people of God. And he went on to tell of a survey done by George Barna, where George Barna had put together 152 items comparing the lost world and the churches. And Barna's assessment was there's virtually no difference between the two. To which Blackaby said, our gospel is canceled by the way we live. He said, the only thing that's kept America from going haywire worse than it has is the presence of the Christian community. He said, we're still salt and light, but when the salt loses its saltiness, there's nothing to restrain evil in America. And he said, the salt has lost its saltiness, end of quote. Influence. What is our influence in a pagan world? What is your influence, both individually as you sit and listen and What is our responsibility as well as a church? The problem, though, however, when we think of influence, Kent Hughes said that many Christians are actually cut off from the world. They go to a church that is 100% Christian, attend Bible studies, 100% Christian, attend Christian schools, exercise with believers, golf with believers, And he said, some keep Christianity secret so as to not make waves with unbelieving co-workers. And so here we're called to be salt. Here we're called to be light. But as he said, 
were often at times hidden. It's fascinating in John 17, when Jesus was in his high priestly prayer, he said, I do not ask that you be taken out of the world or to take them out of the world. He says, but God, he's praying to God as father, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then he said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so GCV, how do we function in a hostile world? How are we to influence this world in which the Lord has placed us? Especially in light of the context here, as we've been walking through the Beatitudes, and we just got finished with five last week, 10 through 12, on blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And so I think the flow here is incredible. He's telling us what we need to be in the world, what we need to do in the world, and what we are in the world. He's saying that we're poor in spirit, and we are those who mourn, and so forth. But he said, we're going to be persecuted. And as he comes off the theme of the Sermon on the Mount teaching at that point, you would think in light of persecution, what should we do? Should we retreat? Should we escape? Should we all go live in a in a monastery? I mean, what do we do? And Jesus actually proclaims the opposite. He said, your role, my role in this world is to be salt and light. And so he presents two tremendous but very common metaphors that would be very well known in biblical times. Now, as you approach the text this morning, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, really, in many ways, serves as a bridge from the blessings of the believer to the responsibility of the believer. I mean, when you think of the blessing that God has given to us, God has blessed us in verse 3. He has given us the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4, he tells us that he comforts us. In verse 5, he tells us that we inherit the earth. He says in the next verse, those who hunger and thirst, God will satisfy you. That those who show mercy, God will give you mercy. That those who continue to follow in the truth of these beatitudes with a pure heart will see God. He calls you sons of God. He gives you in 10 through 12 a great reward. And here would be the the context, that blessing leads you and I to a responsibility. In other words, God's done all of that to draw us into his kingdom in Matthew 4. Here's the character of us in the kingdom. Here's the blessing that he gives to us as a believer. And now he follows forward with our responsibility. And how he gives us that responsibility in 5, 13 through 16 is to present those two metaphors of salt and light. And he illustrates for us how we function in the world. Now, what we'll do is this week, as we prepare for the Lord's table, we'll take the first metaphor of salt, and then next week we'll close out this summer series and look at what Jesus meant when he said, you are the light of the world. And then we'll have our baptism celebration, and then we'll return to John chapter 10. But for our time this morning, I want to ask you and then answer two vital questions questions that move us to be a salty Christian, okay? And so maybe I'm asking you this morning, are you salty, okay? 
Are you salty? And here's the two questions that we're going to look at. What does it mean when Jesus says in verse 13 uh, that you are the salt of the earth? What does that mean? And then secondly, and practically, on the backside of the message, how can I be a salty Christian? Okay? I mean, he just says, you're the salt of the earth. And so I want to answer that second question. How can you be a salty Christian? And that will lead us right in to the Lord's table. Okay? First question from the text is, what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Look at verse 13. He says there, does our Lord, you are the salt of the earth. Now, just stop there for a second. Jesus, of course, is talking about a metaphor. He often taught in metaphors, and he's on this mountainside, and the disciples are gathered. There's a growing crowd that's gathered. There's crowds there, but he's primarily teaching to his disciples. And the reason we say that is if you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, it says that he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, we believe there's others around it, as you'll see later in chapter 7, but primarily, he's teaching the disciples. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. In fact, if you go back in 417, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and here are his disciples who have entered that kingdom, and here's the character of that kingdom, and here's what now we need to do. And to be, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, what does that phrase mean? First, I want to look at the historical context with you under this first question. And then secondly, we'll look at the spiritual application. But first, the historical context. He talks here just about salt. What's interesting about salt, if you do some study on it in history, it was always a very, very valuable commodity in the human society. In fact, much more than it is even in our own day. In fact, as you begin to read in history, there was a period during Greek history where they actually called salt, they called it theon. And obviously theon, you can hear a little bit of the Greek theos is the Greek word for God, but they called salt theon, which means divine. In other words, it was considered divine. It was so precious in that day. In fact, one historian noted that the Romans held that except for the sun, nothing was more valuable than salt. In fact, it was so such a key commodity that Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt, and it was from that expression, if someone was not a good worker, that they were not worth their what? Salt. You say, well, why? Because they actually paid workers in salt. Listen, you worked hard today. You put 10 hours in. Here's this many pounds of salt. And if a guy didn't work hard, then he wasn't worth his salt that that business owner would pay him with. In fact, until modern times, salt was the most common of all preservatives. Now, just as you recognize, as you're thinking with me, This is not the 21st century when he wrote this. There were no refrigerators in Jesus' day. Salt was used to keep things from becoming rotten, particularly meat. And salt was used primarily in Jesus' time to keep things from spoiling. I'll say more about that in a moment. In fact, in ancient times, 
for two people to share salt indicated that there was actually a, a bond of friendship. In fact, even a worst enemy ate salt with you. If he did, you were obliged to treat him as a friend. In fact, as you read back, even in some biblical history, salt was used to bind a covenant with two parties, like kind of a contract that is notarized in our day when our girls went to Albania. We had to go over to the UPS store and notarize our signatures that they could travel with Blake Boyce. Do you think that was okay? I, I think so. That we had to, they traveled with the team. All of you did that we had, so that they could be in Macedonia and Albania. We notarized that. Well, back in biblical times, often um, two parties would make a covenant uh, in salt. In fact, uh, the covenant was authenticated by salt. And though I don't want to give any particulars, not quite sure of all that's there, in Second Chronicles 13.5, God had made a covenant of salt with David. So recognize as we step into this historical context, it was a very important commodity. In fact, wars were fought for salt. And entire communities and economies were based on salt. And so whether it was Greek, whether it was Roman, whether it was Jewish, they would have understood understood the salt of the earth to represent a very, very valuable commodity in that time. That's the historical context, just a little bit of it. But what's the spiritual application? Obviously, he's not telling us like we're the literal salt. We understand there he's speaking metaphorically, and he says in 13, you are to the believer, the salt of the earth. What was he communicating by way of that metaphor, spiritually speaking? And I would tell you, it's probably not such an easy call to say what that exactly is. Bible scholars have given a host of applications. In fact, uh, someone has noted that there were 11 different applications as to what Jesus meant when he said, you are the salt of the earth. I'll highlight a few of them for you. Some have said that Jesus was connecting salt with its white color and it represented personal purity. And that what Jesus was communicating is that believers are to be the salt of the earth and to be the salt of the earth, you must be pure. And he's referring to our personal purity. And I... I, Maybe there's some truth in Scripture to that, but I don't think the issue here is color. And I don't think when Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, that's primarily what he had in mind. Others have said that salt was associated kind of with taste, and it was sort of a divine flavor that your goal in this world, your function in this world, is that you ought to be adding flavor to the world. You ought to season this world, if you would, uh, with the gospel. Now, there may be some truth to that in Colossians 4, 6, when it says, let your speech be seasoned with what? Salt, that maybe were to be in a decadent dark world, the salt of the world and add flavor. There could be some truth to that. Still others have said that salt was referring to the sting that salt gives and to the sting 
that believers ought to give in this world. That believers, you, should be so faithful to his word that even if that word leads you into persecution, you ought to be at least okay with being salt that your words are going to sting. It's going to sting an unbeliever in an unbelieving world. And I'm not so sure of that, but I don't know why I thought of this when I was little. Um, I used to take care of my dad's yard, our yard at the house, and snails used to litter the driveway. And I would sometimes go get salt and put salt on them so that it would sting them off the driveway, you know. Uh, Don't hold that against me. Um, But I really don't think that Jesus had in mind that we're to sting the world. He did tell us that we're going to be persecuted. Other people, and I'm almost done here, okay, because you probably think, Scott, what do you think it means? Other people pointed to the fact that salt creates thirst. See, there's a host of applications that your life as a believer should create thirst for God in the lives of an unbeliever. There ought to be something attractive to you, about you. And all of the preceding applications have some measure of truth, but I really just think that one application is primary, okay? Sometimes you have to be careful to say one is primary over another, but I really think that the issue here, when you put these two metaphors together, is salt kept things primarily from going bad. In fact, in biblical times, salt was the most common preservative that was known to man. Fishermen would use it, you can imagine this, to preserve their catch. They would actually take their catch and spread salt between the layers of fish as kind of a seal to ward off decay, to ward off bacteria. We understand that. They used it for a preservation. In fact, even in frontier America, it depended on salted meat in their trek across the United States. Meats would be soaked in brine or rubbed with salt, and they were cured, if you will, and thus restrained from rotting. And so the primary meaning of salt is an exhortation for believers, here's the point, to be a preserving influence in the world. That's its most common meaning, to preserve a decadent world from corruption. And so even though you may be persecuted, Jesus comes right back and says to you, every one of you individually as a believer, you are, Grace Church of the Valley, the salt of the earth. And that as Christ followers, you are to be in a preserving influence in an ungodly world. Our world certainly is decomposing before us. It is rotting, if you will, like a dead carcass in an open field. And you are to arrest the corruption of a fallen world. You are individually, corporately, to prevent moral decay. And so the earth, you are the salt of the earth. The earth, like meat, has a tendency to spoil. I mean, the truth is, and I think you would agree with me, if anyone thinks that man is evolving and ascending upward, the Bible would say that he would be deceived. I mean, when you look at 
man, and you look at the, the, the discoveries, he's increased, you would agree, scientifically. He's increased and is growing in medical technology. The whole technology side is growing at advanced rates, but morally speaking, far from evolving. The scriptures tell us that man is in a devolution process, okay? In fact, the age of enlightenment back in the 1800s turned into a circus of horrors. And see, as we come to study God's word, we have a biblical view of the world and a biblical view of sin. In fact, you remember in the Bible, in theology, it was not many generations after the fall of man that it said this in Genesis 6, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intention of and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a biblical worldview. Listen, I just want you to know as you come in, don't be surprised by the world. Don't be surprised at what they do. Don't be surprised at the decadence of it, the darkness of it. Jesus comes on the scene in the Beatitudes and he says, you've been blessed, but you now have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to be salt in a decaying world. You have a responsibility to be light in a dark world. Jeremiah, the writer, said that the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart of man is not good. The heart of man is deceitful above all things. If you're wondering about the problem of racism, look there in the scripture. That comes out of the heart of sinful men and women. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. You say, where does that stuff come from? It comes from the inside. Man's heart is deceitful. John 3, 19, you remember as we've been expositing through John's gospel, it says that the light has come into the world and the person of Christ and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, it's in this kind of world that Jesus would say, you're the salt of the earth. In fact, before we came to Christ, Paul said at the church, to the church at Ephesus and to us in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Dead. In other words, there's no spiritual life there. In fact, the psalmist said in 143.2 that there no one, no one living is righteous before you. There's no one who's righteous before God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In fact, Romans 3 says there's none righteous. No, not one. This is the world in which we live. This is the world that is decomposing. This is the world that I would venture to say is growing worse all the time. The reason I say that is because Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.13, evil men and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so G. Campbell Morgan, the great pastor of the previous century, said Jesus saw the corruption 
He saw the disintegration of life at every point. He saw its breakup, its spoilation, and he knew the thing that they needed most was the salt in order that the corruption should be arrested. Listen, beloved, it's in light of this carnage. Look back at verse 13. He says that you are the salt of the earth. Listen, I really believe it's one of the most extraordinary statements that Jesus Christ ever made. He says to you, to a people who have been blessed, to a people who inherit his kingdom, to a people who are satisfied, to a people satisfied in a good way, to the people who receive his mercy, to the people who receive a great reward. He said, you have a function in this world. You're to be the salt of the earth. In fact, look down in verse 13, just to highlight it for you. You is at the beginning, and we call that emphatic in the Greek language. The idea is this, that you and you alone are the salt of the earth. In other words, they're not going to see just purity and the aspect of preserving the world apart from believers. In fact, that's literally what it means. You and you alone are the salty of the earth. The language of the verb, and I just want to help you with this, is a statement of fact. In other words, Jesus isn't giving you an imperative. He's not telling you something to do. He's telling you who you are is the thought. In fact, you are the salt. So it'd be wrong for you to go out and say, I'm going to pray that I become salt. I'm going to pray, Lord, make me salt. The point is, you already are the salt, is the thought. You're the remedy. You're the only remedy in this world, is the thought. You're the only remedy in a corrupt, perverted world to keep it from moral decay. It is quite a strong point. It's, It's our function. It's our responsibility. But... The text gives a warning there. Look down at it in verse 13. He says, but, Jesus said, if the salt, 513, has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? There, what do you do if it's lost its taste? How can it be restored? And You know, strictly speaking, I would say this, salt can never lose It's saltiness. That would be in some ways impossible because salt is sodium chloride. You cannot lose that. It's a very stable compound. However, it's interesting that most salt in the ancient world was derived from salt marshes rather than evaporation from salt water. Therefore, salt could actually become contaminated. Salt, even in biblical times, could contain impurities. And Jesus said, if the salt has lost its taste, how can it be made salty again? Or if it's lost its taste, how can it be restored again? Now, it's interesting. You just see that there. I don't want to make too much of it. It's a metaphor. But he does say, look in verse 13 again, if it's lost its taste, the idea there of the word that Jesus uses is it's become dull. In other words, it's, it's dull. It's, it's lost its taste. It's literally sluggish, you could say. 
Sometimes it's even translated foolish. And I think it's very interesting that it was common in Palestine to actually see salt scattered on piles of the ground because it actually became contaminated with a substance called gypsum, okay? And when salt would enter in and mingle with gypsum, it lost its saltiness and it became, and here's the word in the Greek, moronic. It became tasteless. It became useless. In fact, when it becomes useless or we become useless, or we could say when we become moronic, look what Jesus said in verse 13. He said then, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Beloved, what that means is when contaminated salt found its way into a household, it would be thrown out onto the path where it would be ground into the dirt and trampled under people's feet. And here's the point that our Lord's making, okay? The point is, is that as his disciples, you are to act as a preservative in the world by living out the truths of the gospel, by living out the Sermon on the Mount. And you have to live it out lest you become tasteless, lest you become useless, lest you become flat or even insipid. Now, beloved, I don't think our Lord is saying here by this that we can lose our salvation, but I do think this, that a believer can lose his or her effectiveness, his or her influence on others, okay? And so there it is. There's the historical context. There's the spiritual application. And here, just to close out for communion, how can I be a salty Christian? Okay, I don't want to lose taste, if you will, or become useless. I need to be salt. Let me suggest two things to avoid and one thing to pursue to penetrate our community and be salty. Okay, two things to avoid and one to pursue. First, I just want to say beware of contamination. Beware of contamination from the text. Listen, just as salt can become contaminated, you can become ineffective by becoming polluted with and by the world. Grace Church of the Valley, if you lose your distinctiveness by contamination, then you are in danger of losing the very purpose the Lord sent us into the world. He commanded that we would be holy. He commanded that we would be pure in heart. He commanded that we would, you know, follow forward, that we would be merciful and so forth, but we can't become contaminated with the world. MacArthur said this, he said, we cannot be an influence for purity in the world if we have compromised our own purity. We cannot sting the world's conscience if we continually go against our own. We cannot Uh, stimulate thirst for righteousness if we have lost our own we cannot be used of God to retard the corruption of sin in a world if our own lives become corrupted by sin 
So, beloved, here's an exhortation to my heart, to your hearts. Don't become contaminated by the world and compromise your influence. When that salt and when gypsum came into it, it made that salt useless. And when we start to look and talk and think like the world, we compromise our influence and we become tasteless. You know, when I was a younger preacher, I used to tell this story often. I don't tell it too much. But there were certain countries in the world where somebody murdered somebody else. And if they caught that person who murdered another, they took the dead person who was murdered and tied them mouth to mouth with the one who murdered him. Make sense? You got a dead person and you got the one who killed that dead person. Rather than killing them, they just bound them tight with cords. And you can imagine after some days through the decomposing of the dead body, that decomposition went into that person who murdered that person and it would also take their life as well. Pretty gruesome way that they took care of the problem with murder. But I I think some believers sometimes have gone mouth to mouth with the world. And when you follow so closely with the world and you get so close to the world, you become in danger of losing your effectiveness. In fact, you remember in John's gospel, in 1 John 2.15, his epistle, where he said, do not love what? The world, right? Or the things in the world. Whoever loves the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And do you remember when Paul was exhorting us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he said, do not be conformed to the world, right? But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. So, beloved, here's the first danger out of the text. Beware the danger of contamination. Don't go mouth to mouth with the world. Be holy. And maybe as you come to the Lord's table tonight, for you to be salt, maybe there's some things that you just need to confess. There's some things that you need to shed. Because here's the truth. You are and you alone are the salt of the earth. But if the salts become tasteless, it's good for nothing. It's just thrown out and it's trampled under people's feet. But secondly, can I say this? Not only beware of contamination, secondly, you need to beware of isolationism, okay? Isolationism. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you can go to the other extreme, that the world is so rotten, you may be persecuted in the previous text, and so therefore, you retreat. And so some people get so close to it, that the impurities pass into them. And then some people, because of such a hell-bent world, on its way downhill fast, isolate themselves from it. And to be effective, beloved, salt needs to be rubbed into the meat. Salt cannot just sit and remain on the shelf. And with the onslaught of an evil world, we must be careful not to compromise but we also must be careful not to isolate ourselves from the world in which Jesus has placed us. We cannot just get into what we can call a holy huddle. You cannot just separate yourselves 
families from the world in which you live in. You cannot just ward off every form of legalism and stay true to yourself while the world is just going to hell around you. Listen, this valley needs salt. So you can't go mouth to mouth with the world and become contaminated, nor can you isolate yourself where you just have all Christian friends and it's all Christian Bible study and it's all Christian club. Who, who are you influencing? You've got to be rubbed into it, if you will. You need to be careful not to be a salt seller, okay? Not seller, S-E-L-L-E-R, but C-E-L-L-A-R. You can't be a salt seller and just store it. You've got to shake your salt shaker, if you will. In fact, Henry Blackaby, who I opened the message with, said, is the darkness being dispelled where your church is? It's a good question. Listen, you'd probably just weep if you heard the testimonies this morning. Thank you for being salt. Well, because this person brought me and I really didn't know God and then this person shared the good news with me and then, I mean, it was just so encouraging. But Blackaby did ask, is the darkness being dispelled where your church is? Is the workplace where God has put you? Is the high school where God has put you? He said, are you bringing the presence of God there? He said, if not, why not? And then he said, it's not building buildings and having larger budgets. That's not what God is looking for. He's looking for salt and light that can be radically changed. He said, the places where God has put us. He says, is this not a question for every Christian to ask? Not, am I fulfilling my job description? But, is my life making a difference? He said, examine your walk with God. He said, say, Father, we've sinned. I've lived without my life making any difference. End of quote. Listen, you're the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. The only way they're going to see the salt is for you to be rubbed in. You're the light of the world. You can't hide your light and put it under a bowl is what it says there in the text. You've got to let your light shine, and he's real clear on what that means. You've got to let your good works shine that they may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. So listen, let me just ask you, Grace Church of the Valley, to encourage you. How about the person in your class? You touching them? You've got a person in front of you. You've got a person on your left. You've got a person on your right. You've got a person behind you. Somebody was sharing in the baptism class even today that they had to get their air conditioner fixed and the person in the class just said, hey, do you mind if I just share my testimony with you? And he went on to share his testimony with the air conditioning guy. You've got a person in your class. You've got a person in the store. You've got a neighbor that needs to be reached. You've got unbelieving parents that need to be reached. You've got a boss that is not saved, and needs to be reached. You've got a teacher that needs to be reached, okay? They must be affected by a transformed life that is seen, handled, and touched. Listen, you and you alone are the salt of the earth, okay? So listen, you got to beware of contamination. you got to beware of isolationism, if you will. And thirdly, just positively, I've been saying it, the blessing of preservation. You are the salt of the earth. Listen, it could be that the Lord would use this to to get you up and to do something. 
maybe that'd be good. I, you know, only the Spirit of God can encourage you, but maybe some of you have been sitting down for a long time, a super long time. And it doesn't have to be a formal thing, but it could be a formal thing in the life of our church. It could just be you sharing You opening your mouth. You praying to walk in the Spirit. It could be going to the crisis pregnancy center so they don't murder the next baby in the womb. It could be as a family praying if you should adopt a child. It could be being a foster parent. It could be hosting unbelievers for a meal. It could be some of you professional teachers to actually teach in the life of the church. Now, it doesn't always mean that you should do that just because you were a teacher. But it could be that you should... Where are your salts? Listen, I just don't want us to get comfortable. I don't want to get comfortable. Listen, you and you alone, Jesus said, are the salt of the earth. It could be by going to Teen Challenge on Sunday night. You should have heard the testimonies today. You'll hear them in two weeks. It could be that you go door-to-door evangelism. It could just be that you... Open your mouth with people. But listen, Grace Church of the Valley, salt has to be poured out. Jesus said, after you've been persecuted, you got a great reward. But instead of running, instead of retreating, he said, you've got to be poured out. You've got to penetrate the community. You've got to get involved. You can't be an isolationist, if you will. Salt has to get off the shelf. Salt has to be rubbed into the meat. And we need to be rubbed into the world and the church as salt functions as a preservative in a, dis, you know, in, a, in a degenerating world that is going down fast. Now listen, I know and you know God's sovereign, but all I know is he uses you. He uses me. Christ ascended into heaven and he's given us gifts and we're his hands and we're his feet. And you say, well, pastor, I've got something on my heart and we're not doing it. Well, we'll start it next week, okay? Whatever it is, we need to just be out there. And that means you need to be out there by way of your gift and by way of your influence. But listen, I just want to encourage you. If you don't do it, it's not going to happen. Now, I know God's sovereign, but, but he said to us, you're the salt of the earth. And I just want to commend you for so many of you who are out there. You know, it's okay to coach soccer. It's okay to coach football. It's okay to be involved in school because, listen, you know what my prayer is? And I don't think we've gotten there. I don't want to get so busy in the life of the church that you have no time for unbelievers. And we're always on a battle that way because some people serve too much, then some people don't serve enough. But listen, we want you to be engaged with people. We want you to be poured out. We want you to be involved in our community. I'm just stunned. We've got to do it. We've got to be those people. We've got to be that kind of church. It was always one of my favorite quotes of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I loved how he said this. He said, the glory of the gospel is when the church is absolutely different from the world. She invariably attracts it. Don't try to be like the world. We should be the opposite of the world. But we do need to shake the salt and we do need to shine the light through our good works that they may glorify the Father who is in heaven. I close with a story I read this week. It was a few, many years back. It was a writer. And I just include it for you. Encourage my own heart. 
the writer said, when I was saved, he said, during a mighty movement of the Spirit in the city of Glasgow, Scotland, he said a young lady was also saved. Her name was Helen Ewing. She was, the writer said, just a slip of a girl, but at the very threshold of her new life in Christ, she crowned him as Lord, and she was filled with the Spirit. He said the rivers of living water flowed from that young girl's life, and although she died at 22, the writer said all of Scotland wept. And he said, I know, he said, I know hundreds of missionaries all over the world who wept and mourned for her. The the writer said she had mastered the Russian language and she was expecting to labor for God in Europe. He said she had no outstanding personality. She never wrote a book. She never composed a hymn. She was not a preacher. He said she probably never traveled more than 200 miles as far as I know from her home. But when she died, people wrote about her life story. And although she died so early in life, she had led a great multitude to Jesus Christ. She rose every morning of her life at 5 o'clock to study God's word, to commune, and to pray to him. She prayed for hundreds of missionaries. Her mother, the writer said, showed me her diary, one of many diaries. And there were at least 300 different missionaries for whom she was praying at all times. It showed that God had burdened that young heart for prayer. She had the date when she started to pray for a request and the date when God answered it. She had a dynamic prayer life that moved God and man. And then he said, I was talking one day with two university professors. And he said, we were talking about dynamic Christianity when one of them suddenly said, Brother Stuart, Stuart, I want to tell you a story. And he told me that in Glasgow University, there was a remarkable little girl also who, wherever she went on campus, left the fragrance of Christ behind her. For example, he said, if the students were telling dirty stories, someone would say, shh, Helen is coming And as she passed by, she unconsciously left, he said, the power of God. Influence. Let me just ask you, as I ask myself, are you salty? Listen, you are the salt of the earth. 